0: sickle, bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Welcome to my study. Please uh, come in and have a seat. All these books you see surrounding you are those used to research our show and the individual to my right here, uh, along with managing domestic duties, uh, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from uh, these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I hope everyone enjoyed nice Thanksgivings, whatever form that took. Uh, Mrs. Carswell prepared an excellent meal here.
1: Using that historic cookbook you love so much.
0: It's English, not colonial American, but it, it serves the purpose.
1: It was hard not being able to visit Mother, but we had our meal here. I hope our listeners had a better week than we did. We had another raid on the hives.
0: Yes, but uh, I'm working on the problem. Um We suspect Mr. Petrovich again, I'm afraid.
1: But the way the hives were torn open, I thought we agreed it was an animal with all the scratch marks and everything. Uh,
0: It's all complicated, of course. Um, uh, New listeners may not know about our troubles with Mr. Petrovich, but uh, he was a temporary grounds worker here, and after his uh, term of employment ended, we believe he took up residence in the nearby woods as... He seemed to, uh, uh, well, there was just something strange about the man.
1: I thought your Ukrainian guards were going to take care of everything.
0: They can't be everywhere at once. I do have calls out to get cameras out back uh, for the hives. The Ukrainians, as you call them, Mr. Kushner and Chornier, are actually very competent.
1: I thought you were angry with them because they refused to wear those crazy uniforms you had made once Halloween was over.
0: That was disappointing. But they aren't crazy. They are perfectly authentic replicas of the Kuban Cossack regiment of the eighteen hundreds. They both do have a certain amount of Cossack blood. They they told me they did, and so I hoped they'd be a bit more receptive.
1: They were good sports about Halloween, but I don't know
0: why you thought they would wear them all I, year. It just sort of added a certain something. Anyway, we'll get this all fixed. I had a long talk with them about Mr. Petrovich, and they're going to uh, go into the woods and see what they can find once uh, Mrs. Kushner is uh, available again.
1: The old lady?
0: Yvonne's mother, yes.
1: Who was the one who can't talk with the staring eyes who ate all the tea cakes I made?
0: His brother. He lives with their mother. Uh, He'll be coming, too.
1: There's something not right about him. I don't trust him. You know... I couldn't find one of the silver candlesticks when I set the Thanksgiving table. Why are they coming over here all the time like this anyway?
0: I hope you aren't accusing them. They're not thieves. He helps her. And, and she wanted him involved. He, he has some um, sort of gift.
1: Oh, I'm not accusing them. I just don't see why they're involved. What exactly does she want him involved in?
0: When they go into the woods.
1: They're all going bear
0: hunting? No, and no guns are involved, which should make you happy. And you're the one calling it a bear. Mrs. Kushner has her own ideas on uh, handling
1: this. Mrs. Kushner is probably attracting bears with those bottles she left all over. I don't know what's in them, but they stink.
0: They, They don't. It's almost a sweet smell.
1: It's like something's rotten inside. I don't know if bears eat dead things, but it can't be keeping them away if that's her idea.
0: (sighs) She's only trying to help, and Yvonne has the greatest respect for his mother's uh, skills. I just decided to go at this thing from a variety of angles, and we'll get the cameras on the hives, too. I'm sorry about your honey.
1: It's not the honey. It's the bees. It's very traumatic for them.
0: Uh, I'm sure it is.
1: No one likes feeling attacked. Not in their own hive. And there's anger, too. Lots of emotions.
0: I'm sure, but uh, we really should be uh, starting the show. Episode... Episode 58, The Hellish Harlequin phantom hordes to Father Christmas. I am your host, Al Reidenour, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to uh, further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. & Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive monthly rewards, including a short bonus episode. I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. <laughs> You're hearing a 13th century text in Old French by a Belgian band called Menet Delicat. Their name and the subject of that text is that of a figure said to lead the wild hunt in France. The Menet Delicat is from Old French, meaning the household or retinue of the word and character, as we'll see, is related to Harlequin, as a sort of darker folkloric ancestor. You can't see the spelling; and you may not hear the similarity, but it would be Heliquin, if pronounced like an English name, and is related to the Middle English, king, leader of the wild hunt in Britain. I've discussed the wild hunt in the context of Germanic culture since it's related to the Krampus traditions. This was in our episode, The Haunted Season, which is that 12-night interval between Christmas and Epiphany, when one is more likely to encounter this ghostly procession of departed spirits or devils, and not only in German-speaking lands, but also in Britain and Normandy, the areas we'll be looking at this time around. A major text describing Ellickeur's retinue in Normandy comes from the monk Oderic Vitalis in Volume 2 of his Ecclesiastical History. It was written in about 1140, making it not only the first account mentioning Ellickeur, but also the first European ghost story and a quite extravagantly detailed one, as you'll see. The story, which he swears is true, um, one related to him personally by the village priest encountering the phantoms takes place during our haunted season, that is on New Year's Eve of 1091. Upon returning from a visit to an ailing member of his parish, the priest by the name of Vocala reaches a lonely stretch of road where he hears a great
1: noise like the tramp of a numerous body of troops.
0: As he runs to hide himself in a nearby clump of trees...
1: He was stopped by a man of enormous stature, armed with a massive club, who, raising his weapon above his head, shouted to him,
2: Stand! Take not a step further!
1: The priest, frozen with terror, stood motionless, leaning on his staff. The gigantic club-bearer also stood close to him, ...without offering to do him injury, quietly waited for the passage the truth. Behold, a great crowd of people came by on foot, carrying on their heads and shoulders... ...sheep, clothes, furniture, and items of all descriptions, such as robbers are in the habit of pillaging. All were making great lamentations and urging one another to hasten their steps. Among them, the priest recognized a number of his neighbors, who had lately died, and he heard them bewailing the excruciating sufferings with which they were tormented for their evil deeds. They were followed by a troop of corpse-bearers, who were joined by the giant already mentioned. They carried as many as fifty beers, each of which was borne by two bearers, On these was seated a number of men of the size of dwarfs, but whose heads were as large as barrels. Two slaves also carried an immense trunk of a tree, to which a poor wretch was rudely bound, who, in his tortures, filled the air with fearful cries of anguish, for a horrible demon sat on the same trunk and goaded his loins and back with red heart spurs until blood streamed from them.
0: Bukala recognizes his tortured soul as one who had murdered a fellow priest in the previous year. And then, a more grotesque sight follows.
1: A crowd of women who seemed to the priest to be innumerable. They were mounted on horseback, riding in female fashion with women's saddles, which were stuck with red-hot nails. The wind often lifted them, a cubit from their saddles, and then let them drop again on the sharp points. Their haunches thus punctured with the burning nails, and suffering horrible torments from the wounds and the scorching heat the women pitiably ejaculated. Woe! Woe! And made open confessions of the sins for which they were punished. Undergoing in this manner Fire and stench and unutterable tortures for the obscene allurements and filthy delights to which they had abandoned themselves when living among men.
0: Bokala then recognizes in the midst of this wretched horde a number of noble ladies, monks and judges, abbots and bishops. At this point, the author offers a bit of an explanation noting that these wandering souls, through their suffering, are expiating their sins, making the procession a sort of earthbound rather than otherworldly purgatory. Later, certain figures approach Vocalan, asking him to speed the process with prayers and alms or to deliver messages to their surviving loved ones, something similar to stories we heard in our uh, Ghosts from Purgatory episode. vocalan uh, then witnesses a passing contingent of horsemen resembling a furious army Another name and uh, aspect of the Wild Hunt in uh, Germanic mythology, he uh, sees that...
1: There followed an immense army, in which no color was visible, but only blackness and fiery flames. All were mounted on great war horses, and fully armed, as if they were prepared for immediate battle, and they carried black bags.
0: He recognizes among these certain knights and lords of the regions recently killed in battle. Bizarre as all this may be, Vaucola recognizes in the apparitions something he's heard of.
1: Doubtless, these are Eliquan's people. I have often heard of their being seen, but I laughed at their stories, having never had any certain proofs of such things.
0: And suddenly, he seized by a very bad idea. That is, securing some sort of proof of his own in the form of one of the riderless horses that are following the troop. He approaches one with that intent.
1: The horse stopped, ready for him to mount without difficulty. At the same time, snorting from his nostrils a cloud of vapor as large as a full-grown oak. The priest then placed his left foot in a stirrup and, Seizing the reins, laid his hand on the saddle, but he instantly felt that his foot rested on red-hot iron, and the hand with which he had held the bridle was frozen with insupportable cold, which penetrated to his vitals. While this was passing, four terrific knights came up and uttering horrible cries, shouted to him, "'What do you want with our horses?' You shall come with us. No one of our company has injured you when you begin laying hands on what belongs to us.
0: As three ghostly knights attempt to seize him, a fourth steps in to rescue him in hopes that the priest will relay a message to his loved ones. But Vokala dithers over the request, uh, unsure if such things are actually within God's plan.
1: Upon this, the knight was filled with rage, and seizing him by the throat, dragged him along the ground, uttering terrible imprecations. The prisoner felt the hand which grasped him burning like fire, and in his deep extremity cried aloud, Help me, Holy Mary, the glorious Mother of Christ!
0: At this, another ghostly knight miraculously comes to the rescue.
2: Will ye kill my brother, ye accursed ones? Loose him and be gone.
0: Vokala is astonished to encounter his deceased brother, who then explains a bit more about the mechanics of this peculiar form of punishment and eventual redemption.
2: It is flaming armor which you see us bear. It poisons us with an infernal stench, weighs us down with its intolerable weight, and scorches us with heat which is inextinguishable.
0: But, thanks to masses said by the priest, the ghost says,
2: My shield, which was a great torment to me, fell from my arm.
1: While the knight was thus talking, the priest, attentively listening to him, espied a mass of clotted gore in the shape of a man's head at the other's heels, round his spurs, and in great amazement said to him, Whose is this clotted blood which clings to your spurs? The knight replied, It is not blood, but fire, and it weighs me down more than if I had Mount St. Michael to carry. Once I used sharp and bright spurs when I was hurrying to shed blood, And now, I justly carry this enormous weight at my heels, which is so intolerably burdensome that I am unable to express the severity of my sufferings.
0: At this point, Vokala's brother announces that he must depart, and Eleka's horde moves on. The author remarks that the shaken witness to these events...
1: ...was seriously ill for a whole week.
0: And, by way of authentication, reminds the reader that not only did he hear this tale directly from the priest himself, but also...
1: Saw the mark on his face left by the hand of a terrible knight.
0: So there's no doubting it. It's all true. While our last story portrays Elikia as a giant with a club, a demon, you'd suppose, who's given charge over the uh, punishments of lost souls, we don't really know much about him. Uh, but our next story from about 50 years later, around 1190, paints a more detailed picture of this uh, character. It's uh, from across the Atlantic, written in Wales by the courtier uh, Walter Mapp, and it's contained in his eccentric collection of uh, myths and uh, pseudo historical anecdotes called Denugis Corallium, or trifles for the court. Uh, this one calls the leader King Herla, a uh, purely mythical ruler who only appears actually in this one particular context. It's quite different than the theologically laden story told by the monk, um, presenting Herla not as a demon, but as a sort of immortal spirit. And it's strictly an origin story explaining why Herla rides eternally rather than describing what happens on these supernatural forays. It all begins with a character rather confusingly called a pygmy, or uh, not Confusingly, if you realize that the usage describing small-statured tribal people of Africa only dates to the 1800s and was borrowed from much earlier classical uh, Greek and Roman tales of uh, diminutive people living in various far-flung corners of the globe. Uh, writing in Latin, Map did what many scribes of the period did, using here a classical term in place of uh, homegrown words like dwarf, which is what you should actually imagine in this case when Map writes...
1: As the story hath it, this pygmy drew here, sitting on a huge coat, just such a man as Pan is pictured, with glowing face, enormous head, and a red beard so long that it touched his breast, which was slightly adorned with a dappled fawn skin a hairy belly, and thighs which degenerated into goat feet.
0: The uh, dwarf, or pygmy, has come to request an invitation to the wedding of Hurlis' son to a French king's daughter, something which is uh, particularly surprising to the king as no such discussion has been undertaken with the uh, French royals, desirable as that might be.
1: Lo, his messengers come this very day,
0: declares the pygmy. In exchange for this invitation, the pygmy will entertain Hurla and his retinue at his own wedding to be held exactly one year later. On the wedding day of Hurla's son, the pygmy arrives with a great company of his own people who quickly erect their own pavilion outside the hall.
1: From these tents, servants sprang forth with vases made of precious stones, perfect in form and fashioned with inimitable art, and they filled the palace and pavilions with gold and crystal vessels.
0: Their self-sufficiency is boundless, and they don't touch Hurla's food or drink or make use of his servants, entertaining themselves and others in high style.
1: The pygmies were everywhere, winning everybody's thanks, aflame with the glory of their garments and gems, like the sun and moon before other stars.
0: In the midst of the festivities, the pygmy king reminds Herla of their agreement. Then, at Cock Crow, he and his party swiftly depart. And so, a year to the day, he returns to escort the mortals to his own wedding.
1: He and his guide entered a cavern in a lofty cliff, and after a space of darkness, they passed into light. Seemingly not of the sun or of moon, but of many lamps, to the home of the pygmies, a mansion in every way glorious, like the palace of the sun in Ovid's description.
0: Perla and his company are splendidly entertained, and when it comes time to depart, are lavished with gifts, including horses, falcons, and dogs.
1: The pygmy conducted his guests into the darkness, and at parting, gave to them a small bloodhound to be carried in arms, strictly forbidding any one of Hurla's whole company to dismount, until the dog should leap forward from his bearer.
0: Riding out from within the mountain, Hurla comes upon an old shepherd, asking him for news of his queen, to which the old man replies, My lord, I
1: scarce understand thy language, since I am a Saxon, and thou a Briton. I have never heard of the name of that queen, save that men tell of one so-called, a queen of the very ancient Britons, and wife of King Hurla, who is reported in legends to have disappeared with a pygmy into this cliff, and to have been seen never more on earth.
0: Stunned that a visit he supposed to be of three days has lasted some 200 years, he continues on, But then some of his men,
1: heedless of the pygmy's warnings, dismounted before the descent of the dog and were immediately changed to dust. But the king, understanding the reason for this change, prohibited by threat of like death anyone to touch the earth before the descent of the dog. But the dog never descended. Hence the story hath it that King Herla, in endless wandering, maketh mad marches with his army without stay or rest. Many have seen that army as they declare, but finally, in the year of the coronation of our King Henry, it ceased, so men say, to visit our kingdom frequently as in the past.
0: There's one more major text describing Herla or Elikiaus' ride from this uh, English-Norman viewpoint, this one from 14th century France. It's a bit different, as it doesn't describe what are supposed to be actual supernatural events, but describes a representation of this, a uh, fictional procession imitating Elikiaus' retinue. Regardless, it still illustrates the uh, contemporary understanding of this uh, folkloric motif, uh, just as... uh, Bavaria or Austria's costume perishing activities as I've described illustrate the Germanic uh, concept and embrace of the wild hunt. And an- another bit of background that should be helpful, the procession in this text takes the form of a charivari, a sort of parade of participants noisily banging pots and pans or playing discordant music on various instruments, rough music as it's called. Sharivari's were most commonly occasioned by weddings, and in particular those which defied some social convention, such as uh, the uh, rushed wedding of a widow or widower who is not honoring a suitable period of mourning. In this case, Sharivari marchers would uh, end up at the guilty party's home on the wedding night, but they could also uh, target uh, other cases, uh, adulterers or wife beaters or other uh, violators of various uh, social norms. In uh, cases deemed more serious, an effigy of the offending parties might also be abused or burned by the mob. Or the uh, guilty party himself could be dragged from his home and ridden out of town on a rail in the uh, English version, which is called the Skimmington Ride. Later in history, the shot would become more playful, more of a hazing for newlyweds or even just a rowdy celebration. So uh, no, noise-making customs attached to weddings, like cans tied to newlyweds' cars, can be traced to this. Or uh, cowbells hung below the wedding bed in the old days. In Canada, inheritors of the French custom of the charivari uh, called it the uh, chivari, and this uh, practice and name was also borrowed into the United States, uh, where it uh, in- entirely lost its punitive aspect and became more of that hazing I was talking about. The Sharavari uh, of our text, uh, however, to get back to that finally, um, borrows elements from uh, Vitali's description of Eliqua's uh, retinue, including uh, the giant and, and coffins, which are certainly not part of any normal Sharivari. And there's actually nothing normal about the context. In this case, it takes place on the wedding night of a character by the name of Fauville who happens to be a horse or ass. So uh, yes, this is a strange text, The Romance of Fauville, which is written in 1316 by Gervais Dubu, and then was enlarged uh, in 1316 by another author uh, with the uh, scene in question. So this is a satiric allegory in which Fauville rises through courtly society through virtues, or actually vices represented by his name, which actually is an acronym.
1: Flattery, avarice, vileness, fickleness, envy, and
0: laxity. Residing in a luxurious mansion, the ass is fawned upon and indulged by all manner of social climbers who brush him so that...
1: No dung can remain on him.
0: A notion that made its way into uh, English in the expression...
1: Curry favor.
0: Which is a corruption of the "curry fovo," uh, "curry" here being a word uh, equestrians would recognize as meaning to brush out a horse. A little trivia for you. The uh, wedding is between Fovo and the allegorical figure of vainglory, with uh, guests at the nuptials to include flirtation, adultery, and lust. So that's our context and our scene has uh, Fauvel leaping to the window after he hears the racket of the Charavari marchers approaching, and the incomparable noise they're making is matched by the visual uh, cacophony of their appearance.
1: Some had donned their garments backwards, while others wore large sacks or monks' robes. They were hardly recognizable beneath their paint and ill-fitting garb. All their thought went into making mischief. One held a large kettle, another a pan, hook, and grill, and another a copper pot, and yet another a tub. They all acted the drunkard, and all struck their instruments so forcefully that it stunned the town. Some wore cow udders sewn to their buttocks and thighs, and over all large bells loudly tinkling and pealing, and others bore cymbals and drums, and large, ugly, dirty instruments, rattles, and magic charms from which they drew such loud cries and high notes that none could describe. All the participants then led in a chariot on which was mounted a machine with wagon wheels, stout, strong, and well-fashioned. In the midst of the wheels were attached six iron bars that struck each other as the wheels turned. When they struck each other, they made such a loud and varied noise, so ugly and dreadful, that it would drown out God's own thunder. They made a tumult, the lights of which was never before heard. One showed his bare ass, another snapped off awnings, one broke doors and windows while another Salt in the wells, and another threw manure in people's faces. They wore false whiskers over their faces and carried two coffins in which rode those all too capable, of singing the devil's song. A huge giant came before them screaming. He was clad in good buskin, and I believe it was Eligwong and all the rest of his hunt.
0: While we didn't encounter this association with noise in earlier descriptions of Eliquois or Herle's ride, uh, you might remember from uh, discussions of the Germanic wild hunt that an acoustic element is dominant, that the riders may be invisible, only evidenced by the sound of the uh, shrieking winds, the thunder of invisible hooves, the brain of hunting hounds, discordantly blasted trumpets, or the marching feet of soldiers. Uh, there's an old French word, "elle" means uh, tumult or racket. The English hurly-burly is also probably related to the name herlouin, a version of élequer. Élequer, or énequer in French, uh, was also used to designate a rogue or wanderer, or person of low character, and our word harlot, or "alo" in old French, also once meant the same, as well as one who makes noise. In our fauval text, the uh, costumed aspect of the procession, as well as the uh, taboo-breaking behavior, seems very uh, carnivalesque. Uh, backwards clothing was typical of carnival costumes and uh, could also allude to the uh, frequent depiction of demons with uh, reversed body parts in paintings of the period. The uh, connection between the wild hunt and carnival is also evident in this description from uh, the 1700s, penned by Christian August Wulpias, a friend of uh, Goethe's. He describes a German carnival procession assembled around Frau Holde, a leader of the wild hunt in that land.
2: Its
1: members were quite singular figures, endowed with horns, beaks, tails, claws, humps, and long ears. And they made a large racket full of shouting, clapping, hissing, Whistling, roaring, bleating, and growling.
0: And I should point out that in Germany and France, carnival season officially begins on Epiphany Eve, the night of the Persten, which, of course, are also noisemakers in their own right, thanks to the bells that they always wear. We <coughs> oui, Look at all the pretties!
2: Put them back, Harley.
1: You never could... I said put them back! Ah!
0: Now, for those who may not know much more about the character of Harlequin outside the 1990s Batman cartoon, I should probably go over some basics before uh, talking about the Elequin connection. Harlequin is a stock figure from the Italian Commedia dell'arte, where he's known as Arlecchino, Popular throughout the 16th to 18th century, Masked uh, commedia players uh, performed usually outdoors on piazzas or on uh, temporary stages and improvised around stock characters and stock storylines and gags. Um, I've discussed all this a bit in our uh, Plague Doctor episode, as this is also the source of the masks used in the uh, Venice Carnival. Harlequin wears a black half-mask along with a suit sewn with multicolored diamond-shaped patches. And he always carries a sort of short club, the batoccio, or a slapstick, from which you get a word for lowbrow comedy. He's a sort of a trickster, an acrobat, and a wily competitor with the uh, morose piero for the uh, hand of Columbine, uh, all of these being stock characters. So, while the uh, Commedia dell'Arte is clearly of Italian origin, it's likewise clear that Harlequin, or... Arlecchino in this case, is not. The very earliest occurrence of a name like Arlecchino doesn't show up in Italy till about 1320, and it's not to a clown, it's to a devil by the name of Arlecchino, who resides in the fifth circle of Dante's Inferno. When it comes to a figure appearing on stage, all the earliest references come from France, in the 13th century, there were at least a couple representing him as uh, some sort of a supernatural being. The musician and satirist, Adam Dalal used Alucure in an idiosyncratic play, mocking the worthies of his town, along with himself and his friends. It's called Le Jeu de la Foyer, The Play of the Leaves, but sometimes it's called The Play of Madness because of the uh, mad characters and strange structure and staging of the show. The relevant part involves the arrival of a group of female fairies on the eve of Pentecost in the home of the playwright. A messenger from the fairy realm precedes him with a marriage proposal to one of the fairies on behalf of King Elika. Her response is a fickle no than a yes, and there's more of this disorderly plotting involving a wheel of fortune presented by the fairies, but the important part here is that Elika is represented as an otherworldly ruler or leader. Another play from around 1200 by the Norman poet Baudet revolves around a lusty but dying old witch in Rouen who wishes to marry Eloquia before she goes. Eloquia decides to offer her an impressive display of his powers before the wedding, which includes his troops devastating the entire region, including the witch's house. While these are literary and secular plays, it seems that uh, older French miracle plays also present Alucard in their traditional biblical stories as a devil, or actually a chief among devils. In fact, the hell mouth from which the devils issued for performances was known as the manteau de the cloak of l'Écœur, suggesting that the wardrobe might have been used as an improvised curtain through which the demons made their entrance. Thirteenth century theatrical traditions might have remembered l'Écœur's original dark folkloric identity but his uh, rehabilitation as the playful Harlequin in Italian Commedia dell'arte was advanced even further as the art form passed into Britain in the early 18th century as the Harlequinade, also called Italian comedies. Traditional theatre favourites of the day had the uh, Italian characters injected and were presented as comedies such as the Harlequin Dr. Faustus, or Harlequin Robin Hood or Harlequin Bluebeard, which I believe I mentioned in our bloody chamber episode. By the 19th century, the actual Harlequin character and all the uh, Italian characters had all but disappeared, while this uh, naming tradition still applied to comedic plays relying on song and dance and uh, magical transformations and uh, flamboyant sets and costumes. Uh, Those telling fairy stories and relying on cross-dressing camp eventually dropped the name and became known as pantos or pantomimes and presented for children a Christmas, a British tradition which continues in all its hammy, slightly naughty, and tawdry glory.
2: where is Peter Pan?
0: But there was another route through which Harlequin and the Commedia dell'arte were absorbed in Britain, one perhaps closer to the original street performances in Italy in some ways. And that's the seasonal folk play, or mummer's plays, which you can also still see here and there today.
2: We are some mistresses within us, by the fire.
0: The spirit of these plays was given a boost by the publication of chapbooks containing the scripts. And the earliest of these, from about 1750, even has the character of introducing the performers, saying,
1: A ramble here I took, the country for to see Three actors here I've brought, so far from Italy.
0: And it includes a character called...
1: The Italian Doctor.
0: Who continues to be a character in the uh, traditional Christmas Mummer play, though the Italian descriptors sometimes dropped. (coughs) To uh, back up a bit, and uh, let me give a simple rundown on the Christmas Mummer's play, which only runs about ten minutes, much of which is taken up by introductions and a uh, comic battle. (laughs) Um, the hero is usually St. George and his challenger, the Turkish knight. It's a, a fight and St. George is slain in battle, but revived by the ministrations of the doctor, Italian or otherwise. Uh, so there's a happy ending followed by a song and the appearance of uh, auxiliary characters who uh, go about shaking down the audience for money. The whole is uh, presented in a comic spirit, often with a little improvised asides from the performers. And they are all always completely in rhyme. There are different seasonal plays, uh, but the Christmas play described is introduced by Father Christmas.
2: In comes Aye, old Father Christmas! Hey. Welcome! Or welcome not!
0: While the uh, Father Christmas of Mummer's plays may today be represented in the red suit with the white trim, something that sort of standardized with the American Santa Claus uh, beginning in Victorian times, uh, this was. Hardly how he originally looked. In fact, as late as 1852, we hear him described quite differently in William Sandys' *Christmas Tide*: its history, festivities, and carols.
1: Father Christmas is represented as a grotesque old man with a large mask and comic wig, and a huge club in his hand.
0: It's believed that this peculiar look for the character is the result of an evolution of Father Christmas from an older character called Beelzebub, or Old Father Beelzebub, from the uh, demon's name,
2: of course. In comes I, Beelzebub. And over my shoulder, it carries me club. You'll
0: still find Beelzebub in some plays, but he's uh, usually one of the extra characters asking for money at the end of the play.
2: But it's your money I want. It's your money I crave. And if you don't give us some money... We'll sweep you all to the grave.
0: <laughs> but in a few of the older plays and in the chapbooks, you'll find Beelzebub presiding over the whole affair. So then Father Christmas would have inherited not only the role, but the grotesque appearance in the club, which we, of course, more readily associate with a uh, comic demon character. And as the club doesn't figure into the play's action in any way, it must have some other role as a signifier. So we could look at it as an element of a stock costume of a stock character, say, an English adaptation of Harlequin, who, of course, is also identified by the club or slapstick he carries. In fact, in one of the old play chapbooks, you can even find Beelzebub portrayed in the exact diamond patterned costume of the uh, Italian Harlequin or all of which, of course, brings to mind the alicia of folklore, the giant club-wielding devil who tortured sinners in Auric Vitali's tale from the 12th century, or the lead devils of French mystery plays. Now, why it should actually be significant that the English plays inherited this uh, slightly demonic character is due to the critical role they played in the evolution of Father Christmas himself. It was during the uh, 17th century uh, conflicts between... Cromwell and the monarchists that the name Father Christmas first appears as a symbol of the old traditions enjoyed under the king. At that point he had nothing to do with children or familial gift giving, which is something added by the Victorians, but he was just a symbol of seasonal feasting, drink, and games, all for adults. And then with the glorious restoration of Charles II, the need for such a symbol became less urgent and Father Christmas faded from history, or would have were it not for the Father Christmas preserved in the folk plays. Kind of saving Christmas for everyone. One of the uh, works of royalist propaganda written by Josiah King was...
1: The Examination and Trial of Old Father
0: Christmas. It's uh, from the year 1658 and represents the first known use of the name Father Christmas. And I'm happy to announce he is vindicated in the imaginary trial, so no worries there. Of course, it is a long way from that to uh, Santa Claus, the globalized figure we have today. And there are many threads in that history, but it's always fun to tease out a devilish one when it comes to Santa. This one running all the way from medieval devils uh, through carnival and theater traditions. So that's where we are. And I will close now with a quite different approach to uh, making that connection. It's from an obscure 1990 Mondo documentary or pseudo-documentary. You never know with these things. It's called, This is America, and we have a bit of an echo of the 1658 trial of Father Christmas in this film, but it doesn't go quite as well for Santa here.
2: Here in the state of South Carolina, however, a fundamentalist church group doesn't quite see it the same way. Are we here to praise the Lord, or are we here to unwrap presents? I ask this you. congregation accuses Santa Claus of forcing people I deep into debt with an orgy of gifts and blame him for the corruption of Christmas. Each Christmas, parishioners turn their church into a courtroom and place Santa on trial for his sins. holy day, Well, let me warn you, brothers and sisters. This jolly old man in his
0: red suit and white whiskers is
2: really the devil in disguise. It is Satan claus Now what are we to do? I'm a What are we to do? What are we to do? In a ritual dating back to the days of the ancient witch huts, Santa is dragged through the church and into the graveyard by an angry mob in pious determination. Fire. Fire.
0: Hell has spawned you, Satan, and to hell we return. you. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show, and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or Even better, to leave a review wherever you listen. These really help us out, even if they're just a star reading or a short sentence. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing toward the more than 100 hours of work I end up putting into each show. Pledged commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher now receive a short extra episode in the Marvelous and Rare format we provided a sample of back in uh, September. We've also added a bone and sickle candle featuring the skeletal remains of St. Notorga, as well as two different mystery kits, each with its own unique hand-packed offerings, and we still offer my Krampus book and the show soundscapes uh, that you hear in the background. I want to thank our new patrons, Cameron A. McCormick, John Kane, Teresa Meredith, Brandy Hutchison, Infocalypse, or Infocalypse, I'm not sure, and Anne Lubin. Thank you all. And thanks to Nigel Bundy and Dennis Bashaw for upping their pledges. Thanks also to Ninth Steph, Keziah Walker, and Element for leaving us reviews. If you haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, com. There you'll find links to our Patreon, Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with show notes with uh, plenty of links to material in the program. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenour. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.